Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, so without further ado, uh, here to introduce our guest this evening is a 2010 winner of the Penn Center Literary Award in Creative Nonfiction for her book, This Lovely Life, Vicki Foreman. I'm really happy to be introducing my friend Tupelo Hassman tonight. Tublo graduated from Columbia's MFA program. Her writing has been published in Paper Street Press, the Portland Review Literary Journal, Tantalum, We Still Like, Zizifa, and 100wordstory.org. She is a contributing author to Heliography, Invisible City Audio Tour's first tour, and is curating its fourth tour, the Landmark Revelation Society. <clears throat> but now here's the good stuff. Uh, the Boston Globe called Tupelo and her book, The Most Likely to Go Viral this year, and about girl child, Susanna Meadows in the New York Times wrote, Ms. Hassman is such a poised storyteller that her prose practically struts. Her words are as elegant as they are fierce. Uh, this book has been uh, Publishers Weekly Pick of the Week, an editor's choice at the New York Times, and was recently featured on NPR's Fresh Air. So I hope you're going to give it up for Tupelo reading from Girl Child. Thank you. Thank you, Vicki. We didn't cry. I think that was good. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to work this, but... Well, that's better. How's that? Good. Good, okay. Okay. So thank you, Dan, and thank you, Skylight. I'm very excited to be in L.A. Um, L.A.'s really home for me. Uh, okay, so I'm going to read some test sections from Girl Child. Rory Dawn um, is the narrator, and she's pretty good at school. So, so yeah, she's going to take us to school. So I hope you brought your Ticonderogas. And here we go. Reading comprehension. Read the following passage carefully, then answer the question. You have 15 minutes to complete this portion of the test. Degeneration, the case of Buck V. Bell. Feeble-minded is one of those terms like debutante or social security that is not often used in seriousness anymore. In the recent past, however, feeble-minded was considered scientific and used to describe the congenital deficit of stupidity. 
1927, the phrase was given the judicial seal of approval when the U.S. Supreme Court decided that the gene pool should be safeguarded from those considered feeble-minded via forcible sterilization. The Bucks are perhaps the most famous feeble-minded Americans. The poster family for all the term was made to encompass. Promiscuity and addiction, both encouraged by a stupidity able to withstand any effort at edification. Emma Buck was the first in that family to be officially declared mentally defective. And in 1920, she was remanded to the Virginia Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded. Emma's daughter, Carrie, along with her other children, had been sent to live with foster parents. In the foster home, there was an uncle or cousin who couldn't resist Carrie's sad orphan eyes. And before long, he took to muffling her sobs with kisses and comforting her deep into the night. Soon, Carrie became pregnant. Carrie's pregnancy established her promiscuity, which proved what science had already hypothesized. Carrie was loose, just like her feeble-minded, alcoholic mother, and therefore feeble-mindedness, promiscuity, and heredity must go hand in hand in hand. Carrie's child, Vivian Buck, was left with Carrie's foster parents to raise. And in 1924, Carrie was sent to the colony to join Emma. Once there, Carrie Buck won national attention when her case, which argued that her right to bear any future children was a constitutional one, was lost before the Supreme Court by Irving Whitehead, a board member of the same institution that wished to sterilize her. Supreme Court Chief Justice Oliver W. Holmes determined that in light of the traits she had obviously inherited from her mother and certainly passed on to her daughter, forcible sterilization was a legal act in the best interest of all. Based on Holmes's decision, upwards of 50,000 intellectual defectives were forcibly and legally sterilized before the practice was quietly brought to an end in the 1970s. Sometimes the feeble-minded were not informed of what was about to be done or had been done, being told instead that an operation was needed to cure appendicitis or female trouble or was simply for their own good. Sometimes they live the rest of their feeble-minded existence without ever knowing why they failed to bear children. And sometimes they learn the truth after decades of fruitlessness and failed marriages. Which statements are true according to the passage? A. Science, governments, and your doctor should be trusted. B. Comforting her deep into the night is a euphemism for sneaking candy. C. The ugliest phrase used in this passage is female. D. Bad things really do come in threes. Word problem. A man with nine fingers has four times as many male grandchildren as female and three times as much regret. The amount of regret is equal to the number of times his shoulder has been dislocated from the recoil of a shotgun blast at 21 foot-pounds of force per bullet, multiplied by the number of times he has been called a dirtbag to his face. Given the number of shell casings littering the bedroom floor and the number of shelves, shells ready in the box, how many of his original four daughters have been deafened by gunshot? Show all of your work. A. 
The jar holds five times as many pennies as nickels. B. Each team will need to load 12 bags of dirt. C. The mother will purchase 22.4 yards of gingham fabric. D. The shotgun blast echoes for at least three generations. Hypotenuse. If the lengths of any two sides of a right triangle are known, the length of the third side can be found. Let ABC represent a right triangle with the right angle located at B. The altitude from point B to point A is as tall as the shadow of a man and a new triangle is created. If the legs of the new triangle are 12 inches long and 9 inches long and a little girl is half the height of the man's shadow at midday, use the Pythagorean theorem to answer the following question. What is taking place inside of this triangle? Show all of your work. A. Things like this do not happen in right triangles. <laughs> B. The darkness is overcome by degrees. C. Roots are being squared. D. The little girl will. Help with fractions. If a pickup truck with a half a tank of gas, driven by a man .02 under the legal limit, enters the calle at a quarter to last call while mama drinks at the truck stop at a constant rate of speed until she's reached half cocked and her money half spent, how long will it take for the news to reach me, sleeping, the television on? Show all of your work. A. The dad has to sit five feet from the fulcrum. B. Working together, they can complete the job in 2.4 minutes. C. The basket contains seven yellow onions. D. It will take two and a third candles to light her way home. Savage value. A 1972 nobility double-wide trailer costs $17,450 when new, and will depreciate at a rate of 60 seconds per minute of hurt, shame, and anger, calculated at the rate of four syllables, or one alligator each. Alligators are savage animals useful for marking off seconds of destruction, but unused to being kept indoors. The double white has been in use for 16 years and has suffered 5,845 days of depression by hurt, shame, and alligator. If the useful life of a double-wide trailer is 20 years, find the nobility's salvage value. What is the worth of the trailer after 16 years? Show all of your work. A. The alligator will grow to 18 feet in length. B. Together they will make $36 selling scrap metal. C. The woman must exert more than 90 pounds of force to move the stone. D. It will take two and a third matchbooks to solve this equation. Word jumble. Make as many words as you can using letters from the following word. Do not repeat a letter if it is not repeated in the original word. You have one childhood to complete this portion of the test. Insect. Thank you.
positioning to the table. Just like in rehearsal. So I thought we could have a Q&A with Tupelo. Um, and uh, I was, uh, I came up with some questions so that to get everyone started and warmed up. But one of the things that um, I purposely didn't introduce the novel because I wanted you to hear its sort of essence before I made some comments about what I thought it meant or how it all added up. So now that you've heard a little bit, I think it's my first question for you is. Behind you. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. That was the essence. Be brilliant. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so um, I'm curious about the structure of the book. And um, one of the things that I noticed was that in addition to it being fragmented in the way that I think the audience just heard, um, some of the key plot points happen pretty early on, actually. And I was wondering how you... Well, we should talk about what the book is about, I guess. I'm not doing a very good job moderating. I apologize. I think she's doing good. Terrible, good. terrible. So describe what happens in the book, and then we can talk about what um, <laughs> my question. Okay. Frame, my, it'll help frame my question. Well, I think part of the fragmentation that you're talking yeah. about, the structure, it is natural to a lot of books that are about trauma. So part of it is that. Mm -hmm. And then part of it, and this is what maybe the book is about, or it's one answer. Because so I don't think that's up to me, really. But um, for me, it's about Rory finding which story or her own story she's going to follow in her life. And so part of the fragmentation in the structure is her encountering and, and accepting, maybe for a time, and interrogating different stories that are offered to her about how her life might be and what it might mean. So there's a social workers reports and um, what her teachers think of her and what her grandma says she's capable of and her mother's stories. One her brother's stories. Her brother's stories. So everything is up for grabs and she's figuring that out. So in light of that, um, as I mentioned before, uh, some of the what we, what we would think of as big plot moments come sort of early or midway through the book. And I was curious as to how you, from the point of view of storytelling, how you felt you kept the tension going in the storytelling when what the reader might be reading for in terms of plot right. may actually almost be less important than the, the actual, than the fragmentation. Right. So from the storytelling point of view, what do you think keeps the tension in the book going? Because it does, it's very, there's a lot of tension in the book, despite the fact that these plot elements happen pretty early on That's and are resolved, yeah. sort of. Hmm. Um, I'm glad to hear the tension keeps going. Uh, maybe um, I'm my first audience, so I'm not a big plot person. <laughs> maybe that's a thing I'd... I brought my own taste. Mm -hmm. you know, plot isn't why I encounter any text or spend a lot of time with any text. But um, so, uh, some of the story, or a great deal of the story, I read the part about eugenics is about inheritance. And I think Rory walks into life with this bag of goods. So it, it makes sense that all the crap happens at the beginning. Mm hmm. 
it, to me. Makes sense to me. And then the once we see the events of the the crap, as you say, the second half of the book. Term. Yeah, it is. It's a literary term, actually. <laughs> yeah. Crap. Uh, crap. So once the crap happens, would you see the second half of the book being at, in reference to the way you introduce the story, almost an integration of those experiences in, into her own experience, or trying to find her own voice in telling those stories? Right. Yeah. It's a assembling of the crap. So the plot gets out of the way so she can assemble the crap. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose. I mean, I, I'm not a much of a planner. So, mm -hmm. um, but that sounds like the backwards plan that happened. And then um, one of the things I noticed in the book, too, is that um, the subject matter is fairly dark in many respects. And I wonder how much humor you, how, how important you felt humor was or how intentional it was for you to use humor in terms of telling the story. Or is it just because you're a funny person? Yeah, I'm a funny are. person. Um, <laughs> okay, so I might be a funny person. I, I didn't try to be funny on purpose, but while I was writing this, my editor sent an email years ago and she said you know you're a funny person and then I, I decided that I liked that and um, I don't know I mean I don't know uh, so it was a matter of just turning that up because you were it was pointed out to you or no, I don't or did that give I just you the felt freedom you, yeah. you were now free she to be liked it your I liked it. more humorous self yeah I suppose that's true yeah yeah and that how else can you take this stuff without that? Well, I'm, I'm mentioning it because a lot of reviewers have commented on the humor in the book, too. Right. Oh, yeah. And on a Amazon, lot. it's in the comic, comic category. Section. <laughs> it's called comedy. Or it's it's very high up in the comic um, yeah, book Yeah, like number 30 market. or something yeah. in comic. And yeah. they're all buying it on their Kindles, and they want the <laughs> it's a laugh, cartoons laugh to go riot. with it. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. But I do think that the humor... It seems almost essential in the book in some ways. Yeah. It feels very integrated and very important and very necessary to the story somehow. Yeah, you have to have that. I think you do. Right. We've decided. So talk to me about the process of writing this book because um, was the there's there's one page in the novel that I remember from early, early, early versions. And I would say that like 99% of it is not similar to those early versions that I read. So I want to hear more about what your process was in terms of writing the book and what stages you went through and what if the book that you see now, that you have now, is representative of a vision that you had or how much that vision changed over time. It took a long time from when it began, maybe 10 years or mm -hmm. something. Um, Vicki was, was and is my professor. She was my professor at USC. So she saw the early pages of this. Wow, that's better. Um, so how it changed is that when I started, my, my only plan was that there would be no hope in this story. That was my plan. Um, that's a good plan. Yeah. So the Kai is a circular place. The, the trying to get out of the kai is impossible, trying to jump the tracks, or all these phrases we use that are really dissatisfying because um, they leave a whole culture of people behind. But um, So the idea is that she would never escape. And then over all this time of writing it, and it took me a long time, 
she's she's turned into kind of a badass and it didn't make sense that she wouldn't have more choices or figure out choices or create choices so that was one change and I was really surprised by that hmm yeah although physically in the book the ending is really surprising because I think, and I'm not going to give anything away, but I think the ending is surprising in the sense that we expect ex escape and there you give the reader uh, an image of escape, but she doesn't really leave. Yeah, someone emailed me today and asked, what happens? What happens? <laughs> Does she, is she okay? Yeah. Um, but that's not up to me, but yeah. I mean, I have my way of looking at it. So that's fitting in terms of how you described your original vision in a way. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Part of what I wanted to capture in the few ways now that Rory is like me is is how we never, we never successfully leave our cultures of origin. Um, and I'm a first-generation college student, and I went to USC in Columbia, and it was um, awkward the whole time. I felt like I was passing, you know, I was in the, in, with, surrounded by a lot of privileged people and that take things for granted that no, no, um, no judgment about it, and we all do that, but that I, that I had no experience with. I think my best example is braces. Readers have responded to that aspect of this book in a fairly um, significant way, I think. That's one of the things that they comment on a lot, that this is a description of poverty in America that we don't see, that it's a description of a world and a culture that we don't, that doesn't make its way into literature. Yes. Do you think that was a significant intention of yours? No. Okay. But, but how could it not be, too? Yeah, I mean, more my agenda that we should never have when we're writing. My agenda was more to talk about eugenics. Um, I really wanted to talk about it. I wanted to put it into kind of a prettier package, a more ingestible package. In terms of? Just uh, the awareness that, that we just did this. It was just 30 years ago. We we're just doing this mm. in our country. So not very long ago. I feel like it's better to remember how recent that was. But I have, I have a caught flack for, for the moralizing that occurs in the book. So. Well, so, <laughs> about the structure. Um, the structure was organic to you. Um, did you wrestle with how to tell a story given the structure? As it was wrapping up, yeah. As it was wrapping up, I said a lot of, I will never do this again. Um, because then there became pieces that couldn't come apart. Mm -hmm. um, but now that I'm working on, th on other things, I find myself I'm doing that again. So I don't know if we can make decisions like that. So this is, this is the way it came out. And it's really, it was, Getting it to uh, fall into an orderly line was a challenge, but it, I think it finally did. When you work, um, working with a fragmented structure, what's your, what are your strategies in terms of <clears throat> keeping track of things or making things come together? Do you have any? What's your process <laughs> like? Um, 
Yeah, no. I so What is your what does your desk look like? What is your Yeah what's your organizational principles? I have the oblique strategies on my desk. I've had those for a long time. Does anybody know what those are? Um I can't think uh they're cards. Yeah. Famous musician Brian Eno. Brian Eno, yeah. Thank you. You're this welcome. is great. Um they're just little pushes for being creative. They might say, um, uh, make a simple thing difficult, whatever it is. So I have those, mm -hmm. and I have um, really dumb candles. I really like to use dumb candles. One was a bird. One is a wizard holding a cupcake. Um, really those stupid candles that you see. I, I like those. But as far one thing I've learned since the book came out and I've been answering some questions is that I'm for all the great teaching that I had, I have no discipline. I don't know. I don't know how we how we do this or how you do it in a more streamlined fashion. I would like to learn that. Did you find yourself moving pieces around a lot? Especially at first and then they found they found their place. Mm -hmm. And it became more chronological. Mm-hmm. And I, and I fought against that at first, but I think it makes sense now. So there's a moment in the book where Rory, who you discover in the course of writing the book for yourself, is actually pretty much of a badass. Um, there's a, another character who um, has a toy truck that um, he's very attached to. And, um, and it comes really out of the blue that this character that we've come to love, um, and, and she's really sort of the the heroine of this story in many ways. Um, she takes this little boy's truck and she grabs it and she doesn't even really know what she wants to do with it, but she takes it over to the edge of the schoolyard and throws it over the fence and it's gone, effectively. What makes her do that? So Vicki knows that I had this question the other day. <laughs> and the woman who asked was very sad. She was very sad. And the truth is that when I wrote that chapter, I was very sad. I cried for hours. Um, which is not You're to say... You're sad about what happened or yeah, what she does? Yeah, and I don't mean to suggest that when I write, my characters do things, and I just watch them do things, because that never happens to me. It never happens to me. And I don't believe it happens to anyone, and I don't want to hear it happening. I don't want to hear of it. Um, but, so, that happened, and... People do mean things. That's a central trope of a book. And so, Rory's not a saint. Mm -hmm. She's a product of her environment. And Timmy is maybe one of the few friends she might have, and she has some power over him. But he, the truck comes back. Mm -hmm. So he gets it back. He gets it back. And it didn't break or anything. No. Sure. Because of that trap I wanted to create, I felt like it could be a circular physical trap in time as well as place. That was my goal. That's, it was, I, I'm not strong enough to do that. Maybe next time. <laughs> Maybe never. Uh, those were six or five different chapters. Yeah. I, I don't know where I got it. Oh, they were spirited, yes. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Um. Oh, thank you.
Um, Oh, I, I'm very familiar with trailer parks. Several. Yeah, but I don't think we need to do that to write about them. No, I know, but just for the record. For, yeah, not around here. No, but I, I don't want to, I want to be careful with the idea that you have to experience a thing to write about it. Not that you were saying that. Do you get a lot of questions about the autobiography, to what degree the book is autobiographical? Not so much. Um, there was a review that that suggested whether I had the right to write about a trailer park. Confirmation bias. Have you heard of that phenomenon? Confirmation bias. That's the worst disease on the planet. That's where people only want to hear things that support how they already think. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. If anyone tried to get you to write in a more conventional manner, yeah, I'm not good at taking I mean, direction. I can, I can, yeah, I can see that your, your style is just, it's just exquisite, and I can see these, these, these impossibly end up human beings. Well, thank you. Yeah, I agree. that that type of is your mind I'm familiar to a certain degree that's not mind. Your your parents would have what 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 did that play about what I think about where it came from? No. When your family life is he was a mechanic. She she was a bartender, just like Rory's mom. Um, I I there weren't fences in my house, so um, I watched Saturday Night Live from the first episode when I was five um, or four. So I don't know. I could read whatever I wanted and watch whatever I wanted, and that has. Maybe not. That's maybe not a great parenting system, but maybe that's part of it. Yeah. No. <laughs> I don't know. So, um, do we have any other questions from the audience? Yes. Um, uh, Maureen Corrigan uh, really loved your uh, book when she reviewed it on the NPR. Um, uh, she said you had an eye for rough and tough detail. Um, and um, really loved it. She only had one criticism, and that was the title. Would you like to rebut uh, what she said now? <laughs> no. I don't. There's been some things I've wanted to rebut, um, but that. that um, I like the title, but I think it's fine if she doesn't like it. I, I waited until the until it came out to hear that the title would be changed because we hear these rumors as writers that they're gonna are they gonna let you keep that? I heard that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, there was never any word about that, but I thought I thought that was fine. I feel like people I think it's fine to have your own opinion about most things. 
<laughs> about the book. Um, the Columbia University question. Um, could you speak on uh, how it affected your formation as a writer? Yeah. Um, I think, so a first generation college student, once I got to college, I wanted to stay. And I didn't have anything to lose as far as credit rating or anything. So I, I went to grad school at Columbia. I got a fellowship, but it still didn't make it um, affordable. So I, unfortunately in our culture, you, as an artist, you often have to buy time to create. And so I'm pro finding that time whatever way you can. But I'm not necessarily pro getting a degree to do your art. So there's that complication. I don't think it's necessary. But I wanted to stay. Um, and now I teach at a community college. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I it was a mixed bag for me. I, I got to work with Ben Marcus, who is one writer that speaks to the, to the question about maybe if I learn this anywhere. When I first read Ben Marcus at USC, I remember thinking, oh, okay, great, so I'm okay. I can do whatever I want. And so I really wanted to work with him, and I got to do that at Columbia. So there's that. What do you, um, since we have writers in the audience, um, as a follow-up to that question, what kind of advice can you give someone who wants to be published and um, wants to have a writing life. Yeah. Um, did anybody see that Bon Iver guy's speech at the Grammys? He won, and it was people were making fun of him because he was kind of emo about accepting it because he was talking about other bands who deserved to be there and weren't there and would never be there. And um, I kind of feel like that. I kind of feel like I don't know why I have 10 friends that are writing something gorgeous and then, and I'm here and, and maybe they're not here or maybe they won't get here. So I don't know what the advice is. I think that you have to do the work. I don't think you have to think, you should not think about publication and you should not think about genre. I really, I don't think that while we're writing we're supposed to be going, so is this a prose poem? It, at all. That, that's the key thing for me. I don't think any of it matters. And I don't think either everything is true or nothing is true. I think it's really confusing. Mm -hmm. Genre is really confusing. There's so much debate about it at Columbia and so much wasted energy. Um, but I think you, you have to do it if you're doing it. And then, and then decide if it will live and see where you can have it live outside of, outside of your desk. I wish I had really good advice. Well, I will say what I know, too, to be true about you, which is that you have worked very, very hard. Yeah. So. But hard work isn't enough. No. It's not enough. There's, there has to be good luck. There has to be luck mm -hmm. in so many of these industries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I probably why in some of the reviews I've read about you Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, yeah, or the reader's job. What I was going to say, or the reader's job yeah. to, yeah. yeah. But I guess it has to get marketed before. Right. Someone, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, thank you. What's one last question? Yeah, I have a question. Just the last question. Um, so if somebody wanted to contact you about putting you to work as a writer, all my offers come through no um i have a website and my agent's name is on there and there's an email address and so far that hasn't happened <laughs> probably probably i would yeah 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 <laughs> Okay, Andrew. Got it. Okay. <laughs> right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.